Good evening, wherever you are in the world today, I greet you in the name of Jesus Christ and welcome you to, wow, what show. I can't believe that I'm sitting here ready to start my podcast and got distracted and started to just look around and do whatever. May the Lord help me to focus day in and day out, all day. Uh, some things sort of take precedence. And you know what? It's a good lead into a review of last week's discussion at the end of this week's discussion. Anna Kane, thank you so much. You are here. And as we say, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. Night unto night showeth his knowledge. There is no place where the speech is not heard. And it goes on to tell us also in Psalm 19 that the law of the Lord is perfect. It's a wonderful thing. And Anna has come uh, to be with us uh, now for this. I think this is the fourth uh, session. And for sure, we have experienced the presence of the Lord and the perfection of his law. And when we are in submission to him, that law works for our good. Anna, I'm so glad you're here. And at this point, I'm going to turn it over to you because I have done a wrong thing. I've just been sitting here. I can't believe I just was doing that, but but I was. So if you would go ahead and pray for us, uh, we will be more than happy to move on. I, I am excited about hearing this evening's uh, presentation and I'm so um, hoping, well, even if other people don't come, I will indeed send the link. But for sure, I, it was all my fault. Forgive me. Go ahead. Well, yes. We are thankful that we are here and we're glad that everybody's all right. And a late start is not a bad start with technology when we can record. So God, we thank you for being here. Most of all, I thank you, Lord, that we all are in uh, good health good standing at this particular moment and you know just like the life we live uh, we can't predict the moment you know uh, for the podcast but we can predict that when you're and it's not such a prediction we know that when your spirit moves and you decide to use anything to your own glory it will happen even if our plans are changed or things don't occur go according to our own thought and our own timing. I was reminded recently, Lord, by your precious one, Elizabeth Elliot, who's gone on, that timing is in your hand. So thank you, Lord Jesus, that we're here tonight. We ask that you would make your word uh, fruitful in our lives. I pray that you would organize these ideas, Lord Jesus, and the conclusions that we have come to based on a text, Lord, where I see you magnify yourself and I just pray God that you would just in your own way for every mind every experience bless this time Lord Jesus that we might know you more not just be entertained but that we might grow in this experience so God we thank you tonight for your blessing in Jesus name amen all right so Phyllis amen and I just uh, am going to jump right in. Tonight, uh, ironically enough, you know, when you have a little less time, 
I had the most to cover. So we're going to <laughs> really try to see what God will do in the next what, uh, 40 minutes or less, right? Mm. Um, so we're looking into Jane Eyre, for those of you who may not be familiar with the times we've spent in the last several weeks together. Uh, we're looking at a text by a fiction novel by Charlotte Bronte based on some of her own experience. It's said to be partly autobiographical, but it is listed under the fiction novels of the 1800s. And we have been looking at various chapters and highlighting some of the themes that reflect the move of God in the experience of the main character, Jane. Now, tonight we were point where this is our fourth meeting tonight and we're going to jump to the last chapter of a work that I did for my thesis and this chapter unlike the other chapters is not named it's not titled but what we're going to find is sort of a, a culminating conversation about the bildung the growth of this particular character in literature and I have a bit to cover but I will tell you that part of the influence of tonight's discussion comes from, or, or rather I didn't know it would be an influence, but I heard a message once by a teaching, a classroom teaching, by the late R.C. Sproul. And R.C. Sproul was uh, having a conversation about false assurance of salvation. And he mentioned that there are four groups of people to consider when we look at salvation and why is salvation important tonight well we're going to highlight the ending of this novel and we're going to take a look at Jane and what she's come to and there are three specific areas of growth in her life that reflect the um, the, the the assurance or at least the, the, the her being a recipient of salvation because what we want to highlight is that God influenced Jane and that he has brought her to a place. And the, the key word in that sentence is he, <laughs> meaning there is an infiltration of the Lord and his influence in our life in this character. She was not born, okay, a born-again believer. She was not born a Christian, no one is. But what we see is that, that, that her experiences and uh, bring her to a place. And tonight I'm going to use the word salvation. So that's pretty a bold thing to say. And we're going to see if we find some evidence of that. But when I was thinking about this message from R.C. Sproul and the groups to consider, I narrowed in on two groups. Uh, one in particular we're going to highlight. The first group was those who are saved and they know they're saved. I think we'll see evidences of that in Jane. But the beautiful thing, hopefully we'll end with the evidence of what happens to the romantic interest because everybody knows who's seen the movie Jane Eyre that this is sort of touted as a romantic novel. And some of the nuances are not dealt with in the movies, though some of them do a better job than others. But the text is clear um, and what the, the, the writer Charlotte Bronte was allowing us to see in the various settings of Jane's life from her childhood to her adulthood. So those who are saved uh, and they know they're saved, those who are not saved was another group and they know they're not saved. I think we'll see evidences of the fact that Jane, but more so in Rochester, the love interest, um, 
recognizes this at the end of his experience. <clears throat> excuse me, tonight. Anna, um, save, yes. excuse me, Anna, may I uh, interrupt just a second? There is a hum in, in our reception. Hmm. And now there sounds like a lot of uh, disconnect. Are you there? I am uh -huh. here. Now it has ceased. Now it has ceased. Okay. And if you continue just right there, I, I, I thought it was mine, but I don't think it is. I think it's yours. So uh, that's okay. a good space. I hear it no longer. Continue. Very good. Okay, so thank you. I, we're always trying to grow regarding the technology and I am practicing with some speaker uh, changes here. Nonetheless, we'll jump back in. So we have those four groups that R.C. Sproul mentioned, uh, the saved and they know it, the not saved and they they know they're not saved, the saved but they don't know they're saved and the not saved, but they have this assurance that they are. What we're going to hone in is on the first two, those who know they're not saved and those who know that they are. Now that's not really the, you know, you're gonna hear that a lot, but it's going to come together hopefully here at the end. Let's look at some of the notes we've got on this idea. Jesus, okay, in the word exposes the counterfeit salvation, okay? When he responds to those who say things like, hey, Lord, didn't we do these miracles, et cetera, in your name? And he says, you know, depart from me, I never knew you. So we have, in terms of looking at salvation and how it's presented in the text, we first want to consider some notes about salvation itself. We're not going to go, uh, you know, in depth here, but I'm only going to highlight as uh, what I need to as it relates to the conversation about the text moving on. Um, we have people who have a false assurance of salvation because they have a false understanding of the requirements of salvation what salvation itself actually entails. And so what we're looking for tonight are evidences that our character, our two characters actually do have an understanding of what salvation requires of us. That sounds a little contradictory to what we usually say about salvation. We know that salvation is not something that we do, that we bring to ourselves. It is not our gift at all, but what what does the receiver of God's gift look like, sound like, think like? What are our sentiments after the gift is given to us? What are our sensibilities? Who are we and how is that evident in the rest of the life that we live on earth in the new birth? That's what we're going to see. A couple of things to consider. There's an error that we have sometimes when it comes to determining whether or not we're saved. And I mean, we meaning people in general, human beings. The first, one error would be legalism. We've heard of that, the works righteousness. Those of us who believe that if we live a good life, then we're saved. Heaven is ours just because we die, because we lived a moral life. Good deeds get us into heaven. Okay, that is the assumption. That is the required uh, the, the requirement that is assumed there. Uh, another major error would be universalism. And that's basically that everybody is saved. And again, when you die, you just automatically inherit heaven. 
But the scripture tells us that we are not saved in those ways, that our righteousness actually, the good works out of legalism, are as filthy rags. The scripture tells us that by the works of the law shall no man be justified. And if we look there in Galatians 2, it does say that, um, let's see, go to Galatians 2, I believe it is 16. It actually says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, and this is Paul talking about what Peter was sort of doing with the group of the Galatians, but that by faith, okay, of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So we see again here, what does it look like? First, we need to understand, and we're going to use the text, that we're not justified because of our works. Jane didn't have enough works, and even subsequently, Rochester and no other characters showed that they had enough. Quite the contrary, we're going to highlight what they did not have. Um, we see in Mark 10, the rich young ruler who comes to Christ and says basically he's followed the law since his youth. And Jesus and the Bible says out of pure love, actually, for this rich young ruler, he points out, and that's actually found in Mark 10, points out that really he hasn't done all that he can do. Um, it says here, he beheld him, he loved him, and says, one thing you lack is rich young ruler, go thy way, sell what you have and give to the poor, okay, and then you'll have treasure in heaven, and come take up your cross and follow me. But we know the story. The rich young ruler walks away sad because he had great possessions. And was the Lord trying to say, hey, you followed everything in the law except giving of your money? Was that one of the commandments? Make sure you give your money away to the poor and follow me. It wasn't. But what he was exposing was the man's heart. And the fact that really the man was in idolatry. And I know we talked a little bit about that last time. Money was his God and his heart was set on that. So while he had followed many of the commandments, the one he didn't realize he was breaking was actually the one that says that you will have no other God before me. And Jesus, out of pure love, knowing that the poor guy probably <laughs> didn't know who he was talking to, that it was the Lord himself and didn't recognize his own idolatry, he went away sad. Jesus points this out. So the heart is the is what God exposes here. And again, the scripture says that, um, you know, there is no one righteous in Romans 3.10. There is not one righteous. We've all gone astray, every man to his own way. So when we're, we're again, before we even get into the novel, we I want to sort of set this up. Salvation. I mentioned early on, there were themes, okay, that there were several themes that arise in, in this work. And I've added on salvation and how we, again, look at what that looks like in our thinking, our conversation, our decision-making, our outcomes, okay? A little bit more, we want to talk about the moral person, the good person, okay? The one who's, as R.C. Sproul says, they are good on the horizontal level, but they do not do this, meaning they do not live a moral life, okay? because their hearts are pure or full of love for God, they basically do it out of sort of a, a, a civil righteousness, a sort of a, a personal zeal for goodness. Um, you know, they may just be enlightened, 
or have a self-interest in doing good. But the key is actually having that pure heart full of love for God. In addition to that, let's consider that we are judged when we accept the gift of Christ by, quote, the behavioral conformity that's evident to the laws of God and by the internal motivation or our desire to obey the law of God. Let me read that again. We are judged then by our behavioral conformity to the law of God, but also, and most importantly, by the internal motivation or desire to obey the law of God. And that's what I want to highlight in the two characters. Um, Sproul quoted Augustine who said, our best virtues are but splendid vices, actually. The best we have in ourselves turn out only to be splendid vices, okay? We are tainted in our virtue, no matter how good we think it is. So again, what does Bronte do in presenting this story that has anything to do with salvation? We're gonna find out. And I just want us to consider what do we see again, in this character and subsequently in Rochester, what do we see about salvation in the novel Jane Eyre? The most significant learning period in this novel is the time that covers James' maturity from being an untaught little girl with her aunt, going to school after what, you know, all the early experiences. But, you know, we wanna look at the maturation of Jane Eyre. The legitimacy of Jane's Christian affinity is not a question. That's a statement I pose, that her legitimacy is not a question. The legitimacy of her Christian affinity is not a question. The novel is about her providential journey from unbelief to belief. She progresses as she considers the reality of a supreme God, and then she moves on to belief and trust in him. She establishes her stance, okay, throughout the novel, and her faith in the sovereign lordship of a benign Christian God. And I don't mean, mean, mean benign in terms of being weak, okay? Um, but that he is the precursor to the process of her spiritual development. The level of that, however, changes during the period at the end of her Lowood stay, and it ends with her marriage to Rochester. So again, I'm going to look at now some evidences of not only just human growth or just maturity, but the influence of God himself and the recognition of that influence by Jane in the novel. The first step in her development is her victory over prejudice. Now, what I'm going to do now is talk a little bit through uh, some of the writings. And there are three things I'm highlighting. I believe it's forgiveness uh, and prejudice are coming up first. We look at this character and we love her. We don't really think there's much wrong with her. We actually feel sorry for her. But what Jane eventually lets us see are her faults. She lets us see what she really did not have. And she gives the evidence of that in the text if you read it very closely. So let's start off with prejudice, the dislike of those who are different from her. Now, she, again, she's a seems like the, the one we ought to have the, the sympathy for or the empathy for. But after the Red Room incident in Gateshead, Okay, the, the doctor asked her if she would rather live with another family relation 
that would be kind to her because we know that in her aunt's home, they were unkind to her. But this is what she says. He says, you know, would you rather be with them if they're kind, even if they're poor? And this is her response. She valued the comfort of status of the Reed home more than a new association, okay? That while lower on this class scale might present her with a better treatment. So what she's about to reveal is that really Jane in her early years is steeped with a type of prejudice and a regard for status. She says to him, no, I should not like to belong to poor people, shaking her head no even at the suggestion that her other relatives might be kinder people, even though they're poor. She wondered if the poor indeed, quote, had the means of even being kind. Jane spurns the thought of adopting their way of life, reflected in their crude speech, their poor manners, their lack of education. She wasn't heroic enough to purchase liberty at the price of caste. That's what she says. She's not a heroic enough I'm not going to live lower, even though I'm living now in a situation that I don't care for and should not like to go a begging, she says. So her resistance to economic poverty is understandable, but she's inwardly repelled, audience, okay? She's actually repelled by not only the conditions of the poor, but the kind of people who represent the poor classes. Now, I don't know if you got that when you read it. But she's basically admitting that, and she said, if you read it slowly, this is what we get. This poor young lad who's been oppressed actually has a type of prejudice. And there's a lot we can learn from that, by the way. I don't care what station you find yourself in. Our sins will surface because we all have them. Orphan though she is, Jane is brought up in an upper class atmosphere. And she's reared there, albeit harshly, with upper class social sensibilities. So at Lowood later on, she can easily articulate the problems with the poor living conditions at Lowood. And Lowood is the school, the charity school, by the way, that she had to attend. But she's recognizing their poor living conditions because she's so sensitive to the subpar factors in, the, in that environment. Why? Because of the high class life she's grown accustomed to, albeit, a harsh one. So ironically, during her journey towards spiritual integrity and maturity, Jane, in an economic sense, finds herself in the same position as the poor children she observed back at school. When she leaves later in life, the place where she became a governess, this is, you know, we're jumping from the time that she's a young girl to the time that she's a, a young woman. When she leaves that setting, she has no money and she wanders around in the town, a, a town that you know, she, she's fleeing and we're not gonna cover all of that right now, but she flees and she goes hungry. She's reduced to begging just to stay alive and she becomes like those ragged looking people she didn't wanna associate herself with. She's learning about the idea of industriousness, working respectably, even in poverty, that she was ignorant of as a child. Okay, so this kind of poverty that actually described who she was at Lowood. So what I'm seeing is that God is bringing her to the place this character needs to be, much like he does us, and revealing something in her to help her see herself more clearly. And oftentimes when you're on the road to asking God to come and, you know, 
hey, Lord, can, I would like that gift of salvation. Many times he brings us to ourselves to help us to see something we didn't see before. He helps us to see uh, where we are soiled, where we are needy, where we are depraved, where we are not really righteous. And this is what he starts to do with this character. To further her lesson on equality, reducing or removing the pride that actually is in Jane's heart, Jane takes her cousin, Sinjin's offer to teach uneducated kids. So she's moved, this is another setting where this is revealed. She's now with the family who accepts her and she finds out she's related to them and she's going to teach these uneducated children. And quote, she says, I must not forget that these coarsely clad little peasants are of flesh and blood as good as the as good as the skins of the gen, gen uh, the, the the gentile basically the the the, the uh, those who are more high class initially she couldn't comprehend that her scholars you know had any decency she couldn't comprehend their nature she felt that they were quote wholly untaught they had faculties that were basically torpid, meaning they were lethargic people, really in, you know, inactive folks. And they seem to me hopelessly dull, she says. And at first sight, they were all dull alike. She's looking at these kids who are not like her. What is this show? No, Jane didn't have a scent to her name, really. Okay, but she's judging and she has a disdain and she's sort of brow, you know, highbrowed against people she doesn't want to be like. How many of us have ever had that feeling? The pride is coming to the surface in this little girl that we have grown to like and feel sorry for. But she soon found that she was mistaken about this group of people. Jane's education here is that these people are just as unique in manner and ability as educated people. Some of them even have, quote, a natural politeness, she found out, an innate self-respect for themselves and they have excellent capacity, just like the rich folk, she thought. Jane is patient in getting to know her unrefined students and their families and discovers that they are as genial and intelligently adaptive as other classes of people. Again, her development here is juxtaposed to her spiritual development. This is an evidence, a first evidence of salvation, or at least Jane's preparedness to actually see her need for a savior. The spiritual implication here is that as a child, Jane could not in a biblical sense, using biblical jargon and language, she couldn't esteem others better than herself. When she undergoes, however, the inner transformation as a result of what? Suffering. Then a change occurs and she learns to overlook imperfections in other people and not judge them. Quote, she says, with what judgment, the Bible says, excuse me, with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged and what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again in Matthew 7. So Jane attains a heightened awareness of her own need to practice inequality. And this is in light of Galatians 3. that says that there is no distinction between the rich and the poor in Christ. So again, what we see here is that Jane's pride is exposed. She is recognizing her need to see people as God sees them and not in classes. She again, as our sympathetic, you know, as our poor little plain Jane, we're finding out that again, the sin in her own heart rises to the surface. 
Second evidence that Bronte infuses is Jane's growing awareness for forgiveness, okay? Forgiveness, and we know that the ability to forgive is not really ours. To really forgive, you've got to depend on God to sort of give you the capacity, the sensibility, the mind to let go in the way that he shows us he lets go for us. It's an essential, responsive aspect of our Christian salvation. I didn't say it was easy. I said it's essential. <laughs> Adherence to this proves to be a milestone in her development. As early as her thorn field experiences, okay, even dating back to her experience with her friend in school, Helen Burns, admonishment when Helen Burns admonishes her to forgive, uh, Jane begins to exercise this, starting with her Aunt Reed. She says, quote, I had once vowed that I would never call her aunt again. Yet, after her conversion, she tells the dying Mrs. Reed, quote, you have my full and free forgiveness. Note the language here. You have my full and free forgiveness. But despite the fact that her aunt Reed had a continual disdain for Jane, and she says, yes, Mrs. Reed, to you I owe some fearful pangs of mental suffering, but... I ought to forgive you, for you knew not what you did. While rendering my heartstrings, you thought you were only uprooting my bad propensities. So crucial is forgiveness in the life of the believer that the providential force in the novel seems to set up Jane for several opportunities to exercise this practice. Bronte frames it so that one, Jane is even using sort of biblical language. These are sort of reflectors of the, the, the language that is used in scripture by Jesus himself when he went to the cross by Stephen, when he was being stoned. And so the experience of Mrs. Reed, for instance, is an example of her ability to overcome resentment and you know the other crises in her experience create a different challenge. But again, the idea of forgiveness comes to the forefront. And it is my assertion that as Jane matures, then this becomes something possible for her. And I wanted to sort of go back to something in the beginning that I read. And it kind of reminds me of something my mother sort of says. Uh, let me just read this quickly. Um, this, what happens with Jane, it's not an, uh, a, a, a particular moment in time that the, the novel sort of highlights. On this day, at this time, Jane recognizes her sin, full self, and decides to ask Christ into her heart. It was not a moment like that. But what we've got here are um, Jane demonstrating evidence of distinctly Christian concepts of conduct and salvation through her conversations, her interior monologues. This is something that seems to happen over time. Her religious experience, okay, witnessed or unwitnessed, it's a component of a new birth. Um, and there it's detected sort of like in, in, in the practices of her life. And so we what we don't get in the novel is a again a date 
a moment in time, you know, th this distinct moment that we can pinpoint. What Bronte does do is allow her to go through life and come to conclusions and come to a particular state in life. This place where the new birth Bronte makes crystal clear is evident in the life of our Jane. My mother would say sometimes, and I know what she meant by it, she would say, you know, I don't remember not believing in God, <laughs> you know, as if she can remember when she was two months. But, you know, in other words, my life has always been overshadowed by this understanding and belief in God. And what I see is that there are some testimonies where there's a distinct moment. There's a revelation, sort of a moment. And others of us experience a move of God over time that brings us to. So he knows that moment. And we may think it's one or two or three moments, but there's this move that happens as opposed to a, you know, sort of a jolting into the, the move, the, the moment. So this is what we're getting with Jane. And I'm going to say right off that it may be that we have to continue the conversation because there is quite a bit I want to get to, but I'm going to jump to one more area, another evidence, okay, that is illustrative of salvation in the novel. As Jane progresses, her knowledge of the Bible grows, and with it, her consistent use of scripture as a source of guidance and encouragement, her ability to recall or reference biblical events, okay, reflects the spiritual diligence and influence. Even in her difficult moments, she leans her full weight on the scriptures and supernaturally receives help to weather the storms that she encounters. So her Christianity has been said to be like, not a merely, you know, a merely a social conventional background, but our Christianity appears to be evident at significant junctures in this narrative, okay, to which she appeals in time of trouble. So the appearing that we're referencing is often illustrated through Jane's reference to a specific biblical text in crisis. For example, when she discovers that Rochester, the man that she's falling in love with, is actually married. She mentally answers her own question about what to do by expressing her willingness to cut off her right hand. This is a reference to Matthew 5. The passage states concerning adultery, quote, if your right hand offends you, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is profitable for thee that one of your members should perish and not the whole body be cast into hell, end quote. So in her decision to leave Rochester, Although in anguish, she says, I came into deep waters, the floods overflowed me. The biblical echoes in the statement refer to Psalm 69, which says, I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflowed me. So what Bronte allows her character to do is literally lift out of scripture continually. This is an evidence this is not Jane, the nine-year-old. This is now Jane, the 18-year-old. And what we see, and we were not able to really cover 
in our broadcast, but the influence of her time at Lowood School under the direction and the, the care of Miss Temple and uh, by way of influence of her friend Helen Burns, who dies there. Uh, we, we didn't delve deep into that, but if you were able to read the novel, again, the, the, the puzzle would be, would come together a little bit more for you, but I just want to sort of highlight again some of the evidences and this third evidence is the reliance on and the reference to scripture now let me just stop here and say you know a moral person a good person a person who grows up and says you know i like doing good that person doesn't have to be saved that person often we know that person is not necessarily a believer you can live a moral type life a quote good life quote end quote <laughs> okay um, without an acknowledgement of God. You can't do that. Not many people we know will acknowledge God, reference to scripture, acknowledge his sovereignty, look for divine guidance, be concerned with God's will, unless there is a type of faith, at the very least, a type of faith, okay, if not salvation itself, in God himself. She says, uh, it says here, you know, her Christianity is the, quote, absolute to which she appeals. Her reference to scripture shows that her faith is unidentifiable in her remembrance of what is, for her, God's word. There are lots of instances where she alludes to scripture, okay, in her conversation with Rochester. Um, she says things like, I'll follow the guiding of that still small voice which interprets the dictates of conscience, okay? She says other things, um, you know, like out of Isaiah, when she says, uh, that she references Beulah, the place of Beulah. Um, she says things like, things work together for their good, okay? Um, her reference to Rochester as, you know, Ahasuerus, which is the king found in the book of Esther. So there are lots of places when this woman becomes of age where we see that she is depending on the undergirding of scriptural authority to guide her. She references, um, you know, lots of scripture and it's recognizable most likely during this time period, maybe a little bit more so than this generation so that, you know, people would have understood that. But in her decision-making, her thought processes, all of this is sort of undergirded now where it wasn't before by scripture itself. And so Jane's heightened sensitivity to impressions, the sensory impressions around her um, also indicate her specifically Christian focus at this point. She becomes more discerning of the inner voice of the spirit in her life. Her ability to follow the guiding of the still small voice, okay, um, you know, is sharpened every time she moves forward. She has what R.C. Sproul mentions she has behavioral conformity to the law of God, but she also, and again, more importantly, um, she has that conformity. She's got that heart pure and full of the love of God. She is not just embracing a moral enlightenment, okay, or just civil righteousness that can be experienced by the unsaved or the unbeliever. This is, is that what's happening here? She's attributing this to the divine one. 
providence she recognizes helps her to overcome her crisis. Um, and there are just so many examples that we can point to that highlight the spiritual leading, if you will, okay, in her life and her acknowledgement of that. Um, yeah. So again, I just kind of wanted, there are evidences that Bronte allows our character to bring forth herself so that we get a, an understanding or at least a sense that there is a growth, but it's not just a human growth. This is a spiritual growth. She even says, uh, like, yet in what darkness, what dense ignorance was the mental battle that I fought at one point. I couldn't answer the inward question of why I suffered. But she says that now at a distance, you know, of many years, I see it clearly. So her, her journey is moving her toward the freedom to, you know, see her, what, what's guiding her destiny. Um, again, lots of really good examples. We won't have enough time to talk about all of them here. As we move along, and I'm going to, again, we may spend one more day because I would love for us to talk about Rochester's own confession of his own conversion. But as we sort of come down here uh, a little bit on Jane before we get back to, to before we get to him, um, a few more thoughts on her experience. Let's see. Hmm. Hmm. Religious, yes. Nothing. I'm listening. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So let's let's Good. close out with this. The religious structure in this novel, okay, is the dominant structure of this narrative, okay? Um, we can see early on that the religious references are significant to our character's growth. We look again and we, we see that Jane Eyre uh, basically recognizes that excesses, for instance, and uh, are checked by the principles of God. The, the ending itself, even her conventional ending to marry the love interest, though we see him as, you know, betraying, you know, there is some lying, we, we don't see him as worthy of her, even some of his, you know, crass behavior. Uh, and, and lots of people would like to think that Jane would have taken hold of her life and taken a more feminist approach to responding to this dominant male figure and reject him for good. But somehow and it's not very unbelievable if you read the text. I'm not sometimes quite sure how they come to their conclusions, but it's not unbelievable that she should choose a more conventional approach when we recognize what actually happens to Rochester and how then Jane can, you know, uh, conclude that he is now a viable mate, that he is trustworthy, and there has been a change in his life. So uh, tonight, I just wanted to really sort of first highlight that the, the novel itself, and I don't think we can do it justice in, in one session, but oh, I'm trying to. <laughs> we wanted to highlight the growth that happens, but I really want to focus in on salvation and then the idea that there is an assurance of salvation, those who know it, Jane's conversation 
does reveal that she has a solid foundation and that salvation as we actually understand it is evident in her life. Our outcome tonight, our objective tonight, is to look and focus at what salvation develops in us as evident in our conduct, what we're doing, in our conversations, what we're saying, and in the interior monologue of our heart. We want to consider how the novel illustrates this. At the very least, the influence that the novel has on us to consider who we are in light of our confession of faith. Even if you don't see what I saw line by line contemplation, I mean, I literally sometimes think I'm in the mind of Bronte, everything from the description of Thornfield at the end of the novel when Bronte describes the scene, Jane goes off. And if you were in the last uh, broadcast we had together, we know that she hears a voice and she goes off and she's going to look for Rochester to find out what's become of him. And she rejects what was not the will of God for her life in her cousin's offer to become a missionary to India. But even when Bronte presents the description of her return to Thornfield, she describes the place itself because there has been a disaster. She says, uh, you know, the grounds were trodden and wasted, okay? Uh, the portal yawned void, meaning the entrance into this castle basically was void. The, the, the front, um, you know, it was like a dream. There was a shell-like wall. It was high, but it was fragile, okay? And she said there was silence, you know, like death. There was solitude. It was lonesome. And as she talks and describes this scene, I get a picture of the life void of God, the one who dies without him or even just lives without him. There's a blackness, she says, you know, the stones, things had fallen, okay? And when she does that and sets the scene, she goes into the, 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 the dialogue that comes subsequent to that of Jane in Rochester when she finds him. But the interesting thing is that when we get to the end, near the end of the novel, we hear Rochester and not Jane and his confession actually of faith is different than the confession of faith that we get from Jane because this man's experience is actually a little different or vastly different than Jane's whereas I said we did not see a day a date this moment of revelation that's revealed by Bronte in the life of Jane over time she allows us to hear her conversations to see her behaviors to you know observe her decisions and to 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 hear you know how all that has sort of come together to make this woman who she is with Rochester on the contrary we see his lack okay of a godly life but at the end uh over you know he has this season that brings him to his knees and I want to read this as we close he says Jane you think me, I dare say, an irreligious dog, but my heart swells with gratitude to the beneficent, uh, sorry, the, uh, the beneficent God of this earth. Just now, he sees not as man sees, 
but far clearer, judges not as man judges, but far more wisely. I did you wrong, Jane. I would have sullied my innocent flower, breathed guilt on this purity, on its purity. The omnipotent snatched it, meaning you, Jane, snatched you from me. I, in my stiff-necked rebellion, almost cursed the dispensation instead of bending to the decree. I defied it. Divine justice pursued its course. Disasters came my way, thick upon me. I was forced to pass through the valley of the shadow of death. But his chastisements are mighty, he's telling Jane. And one smote me, which has humbled me forever. You know, I was proud of my strength, Jane. But what is it now when I must give it over to foreign guidance? He's actually had a, I, I won't give away what happened to Rochester. Perhaps you'd like to find out what yourself, what the, the you know, the, the biggest physical destruction was in his life. Um, but he says that I, I give it over. And as a child, you know, I'm in weakness. Of late, Jane, only of late, I began to see and acknowledge the hand of God in my doom. I began to experience remorse, repentance, the wish for reconciliation to my maker. I began sometimes to pray. Very brief prayers, though yeah, they were very sincere. So in Rochester's life, we see that God, he did use suffering in Jane's life, but in lesser time, Bronte allows Rochester to be humbled and to recognize his need to for salvation, for uh, a recognition of God that he had not, a reverence to God and a need for God that he had not before um, acknowledged. So again, tonight, and I knew this would probably happen to us, there's, it's very difficult in a small amount of time to take one's extensive notes and condense them <laughs> because you never know what's going to happen when you begin to share. But I do want us to look at the takeaways. One, this novel, as I said before, is a tool that God can use, has used, I believe, to reflect his influence in a life. Bronte was not, she was not void of understanding of, of many of the scriptures. She infuses this entire work with Christ-centered sensibilities recollections it is unmistakable i pray that god would allow the novel to again help us to at least contemplate who we say we are as his as believers as followers of christ do we have an interior monologue where he is the center What's going on in the heart? And again, most importantly, as Sproul pointed out, is what's happening, the internal motivations or our desires to obey the law of God. Okay, and he points out that what we see is that behavioral conformity to the law of God. It is not what we do but it is evidenced in who we are, who we become, and what we aspire to. That's what we see here in this life of Jane Eyre. That's what we then see 
Rochester is brought to. After he is brought low, he recognizes his need. So I just wanted to touch on, again, aspects of the novel, themes that are dealt with that can help us to see where Bronte allowed God to be glorified in this work. And though many people do not consider it a Christian work, most of the, many of the commentators would like to look at this as a feminist manifesto. But I didn't interpret it that way. And what I see is there's a little bit of a manipulation. You can see what you want to see in a text and sort of try to extract everything that sort of hints itself to that. <laughs> but I think at first read, you would recognize that, you know, it, it sort of lifts itself off the page. The influence of religion, the influence of God himself and salvation is interwoven into this text. And it's a beautiful thing. So again, I hope that just having conversations about the various themes, uh, looking at the life of Jane as perhaps an example and uh, an opportunity to you know, really take a look at ourselves and how we are influenced in decision, even if you're not going through what she went through, even if some of this doesn't resonate with you in terms of your experience, the motivations behind what she does may. So Phyllis, I don't know if you want to jump in um, a, a bit there. Just again, that's just a touch of it. And perhaps one day again, we will revisit this again and try to see if we can organize it a little bit better. Oh, I, I just don't see how it could have been better. I um, am listening again tonight. And as I did last week, I am sitting again on the very pinnacle of um, the message that God has conveyed through the writing of this novel and how beautifully organized you have uh, presented it first as, a, as an academic work and now as a way to analyze and study uh, more of God's ways through the skill and the gift of the author the exposition of the character and how it parallels so beautifully that work that God does in men of different um, mindsets and different uh, sensibilities, if you will, or just different life experiences, different um, classes. This work yes. to me is one of the best that could have come forth from any background of person, but definitely with to us as those believers who've been so blessed to read it. And the film has gone around the world. I mean, this work is amazing. And Phyllis, if I, if I may pop in there just really quickly, um, mm -hmm. as we were closing out, I wanted to, to note the scripture that I believe really um, just underlays a lot of what Bronte deals with in her own way in the novel. And the scripture comes out of Romans 6, which is actually where mm -hmm. I've been studying for quite a while now. Uh -huh. Romans 6, is a few of the scriptures, uh, 6, 5, for instance, says, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, 
we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. It says, knowing mm. this, that our old man is mm. crucified with him. Now, we see that so clearly mm. in Rochester's life. Again, you'd have to read the entire section. I only read just a few lines tonight. But the old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin, Phyllis, might be destroyed. And again, Bronte does a beautiful job, if you read that last chapter, on presenting Thornfield was the representation of who Rochester was. was. It was rich. It was magnificent. He had, you know, the higher class. He had parties there. His secrets were there. In Mm. that abode, that is the old Rochester. He moves onto a property that is still his. It's still on the land, but it's the the lesser. It's the humble place. This is where things can grow. Mm. The pomp and circumstance are not there. So listen to the scripture. The old man is crucified that the body of sin might be destroyed that henceforth we should not serve it. For he that is dead is freed from sin. And if you read the description of what happens to Rochester, I didn't give it all away tonight, you'll see mm-hmm. where he's things have fallen apart. <laughs> okay? Some things in his life, some things in his body have fallen apart. So but he is free when he was dead and it goes on to say in verse 12 let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it and the lust thereof and let me tell you right now audience i'm talking to myself and every time you read the scripture we ought to fall on our faces and say god show me myself and forgive me myself i don't care what the category is because sometimes we get a little caught in the category well this isn't as bad i could be doing that it doesn't even matter are we obeying the lust the bible says that we've been delivered from that we've been freed from that so don't let it rain in our mortal body and if you're fighting against anything tonight fight hard keep fighting and don't say because i didn't get it yesterday i won't get it tomorrow the Mm. more you're christ-centered you will he will move you ask him to give you strength say lord snatch whatever it is in my heart and in my life away from me because you have given me a new nature i do not have to let sin reign that i should obey it neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness the bible says unto sin but yield yourselves unto god do we not see that in this young lady Mm. her Mm. anguish in yielding let me say it again her anguish in yielding as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God, which he is a, finds her place, becomes a servant in a way that suits her. And finally, the last verse I want to highlight, 17, but God be thanked that ye were the servants of, the sin, of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that Sproul is mentioning to you. You've obeyed from the heart that from you know, that, that form of doctrine delivered to you so again about the scripture that was supposed to undergird our talk tonight again dying for sin if you want a place to go read and contemplate your own experience through the Romans 6 and just let's be that we are slaves to God we are no longer slaves to sin no matter how you feel no matter how you struggle the Lord has made us born again the opportunity oh, is there. We all strive for that. The Bible says to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. If it takes that fear and tremble on, 
and trust that we do have an advocate with the Father. We do have an advocate, and your motivation is that interior monologue is very important because on the outward, man, it may look one way, hmm. but God we know judges the hearts, and it is who we are. So as a man thinketh, he is. What's on the inside of us, right? What's on the inside? So what was on the inside of Jane at the end? What was on the inside of Rochester? What made that marriage a beautiful thing and not just a thing of the flesh? So I just want to sort of wrap that with that. Oh, glory to God. Mm, 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 mm. What can I tell you? When you um, reference uh, Romans 6, it reminds me of... Um, what I was called to decide when I was carrying my uh, last child. I had, of course, uh, delivered two very, very uh, really excruciating cesarean sections, you know, through um, just it, 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 it's something I will tell again. But it is in that very chapter of Romans that I also came to understand the there's a there's a release of your present life to the will of God such that you are willing to die. It's an amazing moment in time. And yet when it comes, it's not nearly as dramatic as it sounds. It's really quite a natural response to God. It's not even, you know, no big fanfares. I told no one. It was, you talk about the internal monologue. That's where it really happens. Anna came. What can I say? But God has appointed this moment in time that you would be here to deliver this work for us and these talks. And I just almost don't want to let it go because it has been that rich and that wonderful and how best to uh, help us understand what life in Christ ascends to than to look at it really to be able to see it in action and then to be able to validate those things that the Lord has spoken to you and revealed in the reading of his scripture in a way that you may not have seen it, or you may have seen it. It we're not, you know, it's not a um, a competition. It is a relationship with God, and when He makes it clear, however He does that, we are the beneficiaries of His grace, His mercy, and His voice, His revealing. Also, as you were talking about uh, Jane's sufferings and Rochester's too, and I do, I, I mean, I would just love for you to spend time with Rochester because his cult, his character <laughs> was actually set in motion. The cultivation of his character was set in motion by his meeting Jane, right? Um, the way I, you know, the way I recall, I'm recalling from the film now, and now you made me really say, read every word on that book's page. I have to find me a quiet place so that I can get deeper into it as well. Long time ago, read it, or at least I thought I did, but as I'm reading it again, it is really quite new. Um, but the obedience, the way we live can be 
influential. We think of people with money, fame, and voice, you know, uh, podiums to stand on as being influential in life, never considering, as my mother taught us, that everywhere you go and with whomever you sit, speak, talk, or whatever, you are influencing them, that person, those people, for either Christ Jesus or or not. You are showing who you are. And so you want to always have an internal dialogue, monologue, dialogue with Christ and to hear his voice so that your uh, actions, your uh, yielded behaviors, that which you have received from the Lord, are aligned with truth and spirit. And you then are influencing people for him and for his glory. Anna, it has been wonderful. The, the the scripture also that I am referring to a little bit more is 1 Peter 5.10, but the God of all grace, who hath called us into the eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, Amen. make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And let me tell you, it goes on in Hebrews as another one, but I won't, I won't quote, quote that one. But this is the deal, right? When we know Jesus Christ, we are expecting that he's going to be our little genie in the bottle, that whatever we ask, he will give. Whatever we want, he will provide. And he is going to stroke us and never let us suffer again. But the ultimate goal that we have and the benefit that comes from our salvation is that he won't do any of that. <laughs> he will turn you from that nature of sin into the spiritually reborn son, daughter of himself. And therefore, being blind, being crippled, being deaf, God has to allow us to be healed. And the way that a human being is healed is that he first suffer so that he can see or she. All learning takes place by suffering. My psychology friend told me that years ago and I was, my eyes opened wide open. All learning takes pain. So we do suffer. This has been better than I can even say. I just really thank God that we have had this moment in time. And if he should lay on your heart yet another presentation I, for one, would love to hear it. We've had some really good um, sharings with from, from the artists that we have. And uh, the point that we're making in these presentations is that every gift that God has given is a gift to glorify him. If we submit and allow him to work through us to, pro to produce and to share with the world, by the way, what he has done. And um, it's, it's just a wonderful thing. Uh, Sharice, you know, 
brought to us the the life of the dancer and and I think I just uh, would ask her to if she has any more to build on there uh, there's a singer uh, tonight we have have the uh, pleasure of having a very very fine uh, voice among us and there are many you know these are not the only only artists in the world god has birthed uh, people to honor him and you know if if I often think that because Satan and all of his angels rebelled and fell, right, we have an opportunity to replace them <laughs> in the things that we give him. And so perhaps uh, all of you there would be willing to share out of that which the Lord has given. And by the way, we are artists of what they call the performing arts type, you know, the writer, the poet, the singer, the dancer, the instrumentalist. These are those performance-driven arts. And, and we mean stage performance. But they really were never created to do that. Uh, Psalm 149 and 150 covered them all and said, Praise the Lord. Praise Him upon the high-sounding cymbal. Praise Him in the dance. Praise Him in, the, in, the, in song. All things are given. And so you could be an architect, you could be a plumber. There is artistry to what you do. And there is in the doing a skill, an anointed skill that comes from God himself. Anna, what can I say but thank you. I thank God for you. And to all of you, Vivian, thank you so much. And Owusu, oh boy, there are many of you who have come in a little bit on the, um, no, 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 Vivian, you were here earlier. I just missed you. So sorry. But welcome, 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 every one of you. And may our Lord just bless and keep you. If you know him already, hopefully these presentations give you a deepening in your relationship with him and your understanding of how he deals with us with such care with such love, with such an embrace. And God will guide you with his eye. What better way to walk than to see your pathway open as God is guiding you with his eye. And the Lord will cause you to hear his voice. What better way to listen to what is going on around you than with the voice of the Spirit of God. And God will give you the strength to walk this walk. And what better way to move through life than to walk with the strength of God in your gate. He is a wonderful, loving Father. And we are walking into the very perfection that will cause us to enter into the eternal gates of eternal life and be there in the pleasant oh my goodness read the revelation there will be no sorrow there there will be no more dying no sickness no pain no suffering and let me tell you guys with all my heart i know it's so i believe it and i await that great and wonderful moment. Anna, would you like to end us uh, right now? Would you have any more words to speak before we uh, go for the evening? Well, I, I do. Uh, what I say is, you know, please forgive the 
the, the speaker tonight. There was so much I wanted to be able to share, but I do pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that whatever each here has heard, Lord, that turns their eyes to your word and turns their hearts to you and helps us to evaluate who we are, no matter what we're going through. And I know that sounds a little cliche, but Lord, no matter what we're going through, there's always a place where you can show us ourselves, our attitudes, our actions, um, how much we invite you or don't invite you into our daily experience. What kind of time do we have for you? How much do we enjoy you? Do we really love you? Are we being legalistic? Um, you know, are we thinking that we have sort of, we're in a comfortable place? Where are we, Lord Jesus? The best thing that we can see is our need for a savior. It's a beautiful thing. And it's not that we are saying, oh, I just want to suffer and be a martyr. What we're saying is, God, you dealt with your son beautifully, justly. He took on, though, my sin, not his own. So I need to recognize this so that I might have sweet communion with you and fellowship with you continually. And I'll tell you what, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of you, Lord Jesus, of our living God. We are a little cavalier. We are a little bit lazy. We're a little bit of a lot of things. Mm -hmm. We aren't exactly pleasing your sight as we move along. But look how beautiful you are. You just keep wooing us. And so much so that you have sealed us. But you do require that we choose you. Because free will is a powerful thing. And you've mm -hmm. given it to us. You gave it to us. And so there is a response that you require of us period and your word teaches it holiness bearing the fruits of the spirit dying daily and i thank you in my own life god forgive me and let this mouth be used of you when you give me opportunity but i don't want it tainted i want my life tainted so that you you know that it's that i'm out of line mm -hmm. and every time all of us on the line get a chance to share with somebody to be an influence, maybe be a little bit more mindful and take this a lot more seriously. The Bible says that there is a way where many go, but they're going to be lost. But straight and narrow is the way and oh, few find that. Am I part of the few or am I part of the many that will be lost forever? Am I going down the straight and the narrow gate? Today is the day of salvation. We can start again right now and refresh ourselves in you. And so I really just pray that that's how you use anything, you know, to, to bring mm -hmm. us to that place. Because when you come again, it'll be like the flood. When the door is shut, it's over. And there was a flood because man has recognized there yes. was a flood, which means your word is true, period. And I want to be with you. May we all on this call tonight say, but I've got to be. I want to be with you. Oh, Jesus, yeah. yes, bring us to that Let you be the sweetest thing in our lives. No matter what you afford us, may you be the sweetest one. In Jesus' name, thank you, God. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. And for anyone who does not yet know Christ in that personal way, it is really just a simple prayer. Just, Father, God, please reveal yourself to me and forgive me of my own sins. Change me. 
and make me your own in the name of Jesus Christ. And by his blood, you redeem the whole world. I want to be in those who recognize and accept your redemption. And that I pray now in the name of Jesus Christ and say amen in full confidence that God has heard and God has answered your cry. With that, darlings, listen, the table is always set by the Lord when the delectables there are so delicious, <laughs> when they are so sweet to your very soul, and when they open through their fragrance and the taste, the, the gateway to your spiritual rebirth, that is a table set by the Lord. It's good. It is good. It is good. And for all of you who took time out of your evening to join us, I apologize. I was sitting here waiting for 8 o'clock to start. Well, I was waiting for 5 till 8 to set up and start. And I was sidetracked for a moment looking for some things uh, for a church. And I looked up and it was 8 uh, I think it was about 8.13 or something. I was in shock. I apologize for being late. And I know that uh, that distraction uh, could have been just uh, avoided totally. And it was, I think, just a mindset that could have thrown us out of the hearing of such a wonderful, wonderful delivery tonight. And I pray that the Lord not only forgives me for that, I shall never do it again. This computer is never on when it's uh, on my podcast. I usually turn it off and then I prepare myself here. Um, but I'm asking the Lord not only to forgive me, I thank him for forgiving me. I know he has. There's now therefore no condemnation to them who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And God knows me. I ask him also, Father, in the name of Jesus, to recompense honor as she has given to us to surround her family, all her children, her car, the students that she teaches, the places that she walks. Keep her in your loving care and safety by commanding the angelic coast, Lord God, always. And for everyone on the line, I pray the same, that you, Lord God, will visit each of us. Visit us that we will know that you are near and, and, and loving us and caring for us all through our days and nights in the name of Jesus Christ. And with that, my darlings, it has been a wonderful, wonderful time. We have um, dined beautifully and more than sufficiently. He has given us dainties that we would never have been able to whip up for ourselves. And so we are really grateful and we go forth rejoicing for the goodness of God and for all that he has delivered to us through the mouth of this, his servant, Anna. God bless you. And if you come on next week and I have done the same thing immediately, if you do not hear me pray and say, Lord, get her to the to the uh microphone <laughs> but I don't think it's going to happen again may God be praised have a great night 
thank you. Wednesdays at 8. I didn't even tell you this is wow, what a show. The live podcast outreach of Rehoboth Institute of the Arts. Presently, we are together Wednesday evenings at 8 o'clock. You are welcome every time you come. You can also speak with us whatever you like. You may also say to me, I'd like to sit in the uh, co-host seat and talk with you. We will do that. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are his beloved. He died for the whole world. Just don't you ever forget it. And he's yours for the asking. God bless. See you next time.